Hi, everyone. This is Nadia and Domenica, and we're super excited for you to listen to our fourth episode. A lot has transgressed since we spoke with you last. Joe Biden was inaugurated as America's 46th president. Violent extremists stormed the Capitol. Donald Trump has been impeached and is now awaiting trial in the Senate. And GameStop is now the beacon of the American people. Yeah, that one is going to continue to stump me. I don't think I'll ever understand the stock market. Well, good thing we're not focusing on that for today's episode. Instead, we'll talk about something that many of us our age don't typically think about, messaging. Here to help us do that is Anat Shankar Ozario, the principal of ASO Communications, a firm that provides guidance on the messaging for progressive policies. She's an expert in this arena and specifically with those policies that resonate with young voters. She has done both qualitative and quantitative research for prominent pollsters, as well as written for the New York Times, The Atlantic, and The Huffington Post. I'm so excited to speak with her about the rhetoric of this new administration and the strategy for the 2022 midterms. Can you believe it? Let's jump right in. Anat, thanks so much for being here. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Thanks so much for having me. So because we just got off the inauguration, I'm really curious to ask what your takes on the inaugural address was, because honestly, I heard mixed reviews. I think people who were looking at it from an academic lens hated it (laughs) and they thought it was awful. And then other people, you know, who were maybe just looking at it like in the moment, maybe more, I don't want to say average American, but people who aren't looking at it from the academic lens, they loved it. And so I I want to know what your takes on it were. Yeah, it's funny that you uh, lift that up in the introduction, because my feeling about it was it was a bit of the best of times and the worst of times within its own self. Um, I think it if I had to summarize it, it sort of kind of Biden arguing with himself in essence, or Biden speechwriters arguing with themselves, uh, probably to be more accurate, between a very classic sort of the institutions have held, democracy has prevailed, which of course is just unmitigated horseshit, which I could go on and on and on. Obviously we don't have a democracy that isn't a thing we've ever had for many, many, many reasons. And the notion that through a post-election, a post-November 3rd period inside of an electoral structure that was created in the 18th century for the preservation of white supremacy, which, you know, still continued. The the fact that it just takes us so freaking long between election and swearing in, I mean, is its own massive problem, but I digress. The speech itself is sort of in between this kind of democracy has prevailed, we've done it, like look how strong and beautiful and great America is, and uh, much more accurate, I would argue, reformist redeemer discourse around there's so much to repair, there's so much to restore. I think if I had to point to kind of the most horrifying line in the speech, because why not just go straight into the heart of what's upsetting? Uh, I think the line around, we must end this uncivil war that pits red against blue. I think that that is simultaneously, it's sort of a palimpsest of really bad thinking where you have both ciderism on full display 
where there's this idea that like, well, everyone's just being mean to everyone. And that's the source of this problem. Uh, not true. And I mean, also on civil war, like, do you not know that the civil war, like civil means civilian, domestic, like what's an yeah. uncivil war? You're misusing that term. And as if the civil war were not at least in sort of popular understanding as is taught to kind of, you know, third and fourth graders about one of the most important things that there is in life, which is about whether or not human beings should be recognized as fully equal, free, you know, in full dominion of their corporeal and intellectual selves. An idea that we would just sort of wave this away as like a nasty bickering. This just insulting all the way up and down the chain. So for me, it was a mixed bag between him recognizing, um, you know, the so much work left to do, the like we have to actually make the promise of democracy real, but then also resting upon some notions that America's already working as is when it's not. Yeah. And do you think Biden has like a larger messaging problem regarding that kind of like hard balance? I, I just feel like it's a very tricky line to walk, and I'm not sure if he's done that. It's a definitely very tricky line to walk. I think, um, I mean, there are so many ways that I could answer this, but I think going back, if you'll allow, to the 2016 election and sort of what Hillary Clinton's basic storyline was and minus the misogyny, which obviously, you know, was not a casting a pallor over Joe Biden, you know, she had all of that additional to deal with. Um, the fundamental issue that I think both of them face is that in order for a narrative to make sense, there's just certain basic components of it that have to be in place. And one of them is you have to have an origin story. You have to have a credible explanation for why it is that things are as bad and as challenging as they are. So you have to be able to provide an origin story for why the present day is how it is. And you have to be able to provide what I frequently call a beautiful tomorrow a image, a hunger, a yearning for this better thing that you are going to have and that we are going to create together once we have, you know, elected me, once we have made these policy choices, once we have made these electoral decisions. And when you are the senator from Wall Street, in Clinton's case, and when you are the senator from MasterCard, in Biden's case, you know, previous to being the vice president, obviously, it's really challenging to present a credible origin story because in truth, the reason why people are struggling and suffering as much as they are is because a teeny tiny, all-powerful, wealthy few are taking the wealth that the work of us all creates and hoarding it in ever fewer, ever wider, ever more male hands. And that's, that's the problem. And what the right has done, and you know, we saw this in its sort of like most concentrated form with Trump, but this is what they've always done. It's, it's not a Trumpian phenomenon, right? We wouldn't have had a President Trump were this not the fundamental architecture of the right-wing narrative. What they've done is they've provided an origin story and they've said, the reason why you 
ex coal miner in West Virginia, or the reason why you, you know, person living in the deindustrialized upper Midwest, the reason why your dairy farm is failing person in Wisconsin is because of them, is because of inner city crime, is because of Milwaukee, is because of people who are not coming in the right way or because of illegal immigrants. And so they're constantly offering up these dog whistles, this racially coded speech to give you an origin story about what your economic troubles, where they come from. And while this is principally a strategy to cultivate and sustain the white vote, I wish I could tell you that it's just concentrated to that, but this dog whistling is potent and powerful. And we see in the data that it creates rifts between black and brown. It creates rifts between, you know, Asian Americans and Latinos. We see that it creates rifts between first generation and second generation. This is potent stuff that is a venom that obviously principally affects white people, don't mistake me, but it's not contained just to them. Right, right. And I feel like this transitions um, nicely into your idea of the race class narrative. I was wondering if you could just give a brief explanation of what that is um, and how it affects or how it plays into messaging. Yeah. So the race class narrative is essentially an attempt to solve this problem. Right. And it uh, was born, it's it's vital to say and to lift up, uh, of the scholarship of Ian Haney Lopez, who is a law professor at Berkeley, who approached me. He literally wrote the book, Dog Whistle Politics. And he approached me having been through a workshop that I did around strategic messaging and which messages work and which messages don't that I um, pulled together sort of in the aftermath of the 2016 election. So we did it in January of 2017. And we teamed up with Heather McGee, who was the president of Demos at the time, um, also incredible thinker, writer, just came out with a book on this same topic called Some of Us, S-U-M of Us. And we created this project with lots of other people um, to really both understand the right-wing narrative, but more importantly, to come up with an antidote and to settle once and for all, we hope, this age-old, very tired fight that happens within democratic politics, which is, are we doing turnout? Are we doing persuasion? Are we doing turnout? Are we doing persuasion? Which is just another way of saying, are we attempting to court and appease and genuflect at the altar of, you know, Obama to Trump voters, which is was an obsession through all of Trump's term, but essentially kind of white swing hitters. Or are we recognizing that what the left needs to do is it needs to mobilize its base and that a progressive base is fundamentally made up of black folks, other people of color, uh, young voters, you know, unmarried women, et cetera, and that we need to be appealing to that base. And so what the race class narrative does is it says that that's a bullshit question because in fact, turnout is persuasion. And what I mean by that is that if your words don't spread, they don't work. And politics and life is very noisy. It's very hard to break a message through. There is so much going on. The news cycle can be measured in nanoseconds, right? So how do you get a message to consistently break through so it's something that people are actually hearing? And 
too many times messages are constructed out of, oh, well, it persuaded these people. It's like, well, okay, theoretically, that's great, except you couldn't get anybody to say it. And since nobody said it, nobody heard it, so it persuaded nobody. So the way the race class narrative works is it has a three-part structure and the order is really super important. It opens the first sentence with a shared value instead of opening with a problem. So standard progressive messaging usually begins with some permutation of, boy, have I got a problem for you? That's our favorite thing to do. <laughs> Turns out people got 99 problems and they don't want yours. So a race class narrative message opens with a shared value, for example. No matter what we look like or where we come from, most of us believe that people who work for a living ought to earn a living. If you're about to talk about wages, right? You're about to talk about the minimum wage. Or uh, whether we're black or white, Latino or Asian, native or newcomer, when someone we love is ill or injured, our number one priority is getting them care without going bankrupt to do it. If you're about to talk about health care, right? So an opening shared value that explicitly names race. Then second, it names the problem as one of deliberate division. It essentially narrates the dog whistle. It tells people, hey, the way they're getting away with this is by making you point your finger in the wrong direction. So what that actually sounds like in a message is, but today, a wealthy and powerful few and the politicians they pay for, or but today, you know, a handful of corporations or but today XYZ politician, depending on what you're talking about, are dividing us from each other based on what we look like or where we come from. So we won't join together to demand the proven solutions all of us need. And then thirdly, it resolves the cognitive dissonance created between that opening shared value and the problem that's getting in the way of being able to live how most of us want to live. It closes that with the call to action, whatever you're trying to push people toward, and a insistent, an insistence on cross-racial solidarity. So by joining together across race and place, we can pass this relief bill and ensure that every one of our families has what we need to get and stay well. So that kind of a closer. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, I mean, this might be a simple question, but I feel like a lot of your messaging relies on like outwardly naming things, like being very specific about what you're talking about. Um, and I'm wondering why it is that like when you name something so outright, it's impactful for people and it like connects with people. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's this canard, it's very old, where, you know, people used to say, and I guess some people still say, uh, well, we shouldn't have sex ed in schools, because if we have teachers talking about sex, that's where kids are going to learn about sex. So it turns out, I can tell you as the parent, sex ed is not actually where kids learn about sex. They already know about sex. And I know you, you're like, what are you talking about? This is a major digression. So it turns out that Americans know that we have massive issues of racial division. Like they know that race is an issue. Us naming race is not where they're like, oh, <laughs> really? We have a race problem? Just like the seventh grade teacher is not how your kid first learns about sex. Sorry, parents. That's just true. So if instead of explicitly naming sort of the elephant in the room, to use a cliche, we try to like tiptoe around it. Mm -hmm. 
then what happens is that politics is not solitary. We don't live in a universe in which we get our opposition, we, we can just make them be quiet. If we could, you know, we'd be sipping Mai Tais right now, not having this conversation or doing lots of what we do, at least I would be. And so when we recognize that politics is not solitary, when we recognize that our target audiences, even the most progressive among them, are hearing race baiting, are hearing dog whistling, are hearing, you know, the unmitigated lies and bullshit from our opposition, the idea that we could conduct a 2020 campaign, just to take one for instance, without talking about race or without talking about policing or without talking about the protests, because we'll just talk to them about money. We'll just talk to them about wages and working conditions and COVID relief. We just won't mention those things. They're still hearing about those things. Yeah. And if we're silent, the only thing they're hearing is what the opposition is saying. So it's not a choice to end the conversation about protests for racial justice. It's a choice to only have the other side's voice in that conversation. And that's why we have to be explicit and very, very pointed about these issues. Mm-hmm. It's also the moral thing to do. I mean, I was just giving you the strategic answer. Like yeah. above All of that is that it's just the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think Joe Biden has been using the race class narrative? Um. Joe Biden is a continuous mixed bag. Um, There are absolutely moments where he uses it and even, you know, at the risk of hubris, like uses sentences verbatim that come out of messaging guides that we've created. So there are moments in which he will talk about, you know, deliberate division. And if they have us pointing the finger at each other, then we're not pointing our finger in the right direction at the people who actually caused the problem. There are absolutely moments where he does that. And then there are many, many moments um, where he defaults to kind of the standard democratic colorblind populism or where he defaults the other direction to a race only but not class approach. Because that's also a lane to go in, right? There's a class only lane and there's a race only lane. And then there is a race class lane. And the danger of the race only lane is that it doesn't connect back to neoliberalism and to the fact of power and to the fact of, um, you know, people both need to not be harassed, targeted, detained, and killed by police, and they need to be paid a living wage. Like, both of those things are true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Um, so in your handbook, Messaging This Moment, you give some examples of common talking points um, that progressives use that aren't effective and how they can reword them to be effective. So in your opinion, what common talking points do you find progressives using the most that are the most ineffective? Like, which ones are the ones that they're using and are like completely wrong? Yeah. So it's, there is a habituated pull toward talking about our opposition. That is, I would say, if I could only correct one mistake, and you know, that would be very hard. That's like, if you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, I would not be happy with that question. But if I had to just attempt to alter one form of habituation, it would be 
our obsession with our opposition and our unerring default to talk about them. So for example, I mean, I could give you 500,000 examples. Yesterday, right, 50 Democrats voted to move ahead a $1.9 trillion package of absolutely long overdue bare minimum relief to ensure that our families can get and stay well, to distribute the vaccine, to contend with the unbelievable hardships that our children have been put through in quote unquote distance learning to, you know, to a million things that we should have done 10 months ago, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that we should have done 10 years ago, but like also within the context of the pandemic that we should have done. And the reporting on it, and not just the reporting, because it's not our response, you know, like the mainstream media reports how they do, like, what are we supposed to do about that? But the amplification of that on lefty social media is what, quote, no Republicans, that was what was trending. No Republicans, right? No Republicans voted for this. No Republicans voted for that. No Republicans voted. And I'm like, are you kidding me? The headline here, friends, is... Every single Democrat made good on their oath to you to be a government that acts in your interests and cares for every single one of us, no matter our background or our political party. Every single Democrat voted to try to make your life better wherever you live, whoever you voted for. That's what happened yesterday. And instead, we report on it as what Republicans did not do. And Democrats do that as well. And, and you know, or to give another example, you know, Republicans pretend like the reason not to contend with and to deliver justice uh, for the attack that was launched on our country and on our people, fed and spread by a massive and ongoing lie intended to silence and suppress Black voters, young voters, Indigenous voters, people who just became voters, right, new Americans. They want to, their way of contending with that is this sort of faux unity claim, right? No, we don't need to do the Senate trial. We need unity. And so what do Democrats say? What does the left say? We say, quote, no unity without accountability. We go straight to negation, which at once credits them for actually wanting unity, which of course they don't. It, Im- it implies that like they mean it and it's not like a pile of horse shit and it positions us as anti-unity. So that's the, mo- that's the biggest mistake is the constant being a no and a don't and a stop and a can't instead of having an affirmative message. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, looking forward to 2022 midterms, which I can't even believe that we're already doing. I mean, we just got out of an election. But um, do you think what other I mean, what other strategies are there for progressives and for Democrats in general to win back some of the seats that they lost and to also avoid um, the kind of Republican sweep that Obama had in his 2020 midterms? Yeah. So part of that is not a messaging answer at all. Right. Part of that is is delivering part of that is actually being a government that does big bold things and that people's experience of the next two years is a material improvement in their lives and is a sort of spiritual improvement in their lives where they feel better about 
where they live and who they are and what their nation represents. So part of it is just like delivering good governance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On the messaging side, because that's what I know about, um, it's giving a full-throated and relentless ongoing speech about what Democrats are delivering and having a government that cares yeah. for us and having people in office who respect every single one of us and reflect the best of every kind of American, rather than simply defaulting to the like, they did this horrible thing and they did this horrible thing and they did this horrible thing and look at this horrible thing. You know, you would think that we would have learned, you would think, that after four years of Trump, that talking about Trump is what got us Trump. Yeah. That was true through the 2016 election. We continued to maintain his power. We positioned ourselves, and, and I think we've, I hope we've moved past this, but we positioned ourselves as a resistance, not as a governing force. And, you know, basically what Democrats, what progressives need to do is we need to relinquish our comfort and our habituation to being in the resistance and step into being in leadership. If you want people to think that you're in charge, tell them that you are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then this is kind of, I mean, not off topic, but I was... I was watching AOC's live stream the other day. Um, I mean, that was just like heartbreaking to see that she was talking about um, her experience in the Capitol um, and and just like the absolute terror. Like, I don't think many people have gone into detail about what happened there as she did. Um, but I'm just wondering, do you think that she and other progressives like her are using social media to their advantage in a way that other people aren't? Like, I mean, she's using like Twitch which I'm barely like I've been on maybe once, but um, I just wanted to know what you thought about that. Yeah. I think that she is a once in a lifetime, brilliant, intuitive, and also studied communicator uh, really unlike very, very, very few people. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of like using social media, et cetera, Social media is a tool and it can be used well and it can use be used badly. So if you're on Twitter all the time saying really stupid shit, then you're on Twitter saying really stupid shit. If you're on Twitter saying useful, helpful, well-framed stuff, then like, great. And so, yes, I think it's great. And I think that it is, you know, it, she does a good job going quote unquote, direct to consumer, like not filtering her message through the media, right? Yeah. Being able to communicate directly by doing things like Instagram Live. But the essential point is that it's the content of that discourse, whether it would be delivered on an interview, you know, with a more mainstream media outlet, or whether it would be delivered through Instagram Live, or whether it would be delivered through tweets, it's really the content that is what differentiates it more than the vehicle. And, and I think that that's the problem. People become fixated on the vehicle because whatever is the new vehicle is like, that's what you need to do. You need to like go be over here. And it's like, yes, you need to be on Twitter, but if you're bad at it and your messages are bad, they're going to be bad on Twitter, just like they were bad in newsprint. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so 
to close off because we're a podcast that focuses on understanding the workings of government. Um, I think most people think of messaging when it comes to elections and how can you appeal to certain voters. But I want to know, I, I guess, from your perspective, why does messaging matter in politics all of the time? Um, and how is it used to get things done? How does it play a role in governance? So I don't know if you can give some examples that you see messaging um, in ties to government. Yeah, anything like that. Do you mean in ties to sort of our perception of the government itself or in terms of policymaking? In terms of policymaking. Okay, that's easier. So millions, right? Basically, what we need to understand about human cognition is that especially for many of us who kind of have been through higher education, we are still wrestling with the remnants of a rational actor model. And we are taught that, you know, we're taught this in economics, we're taught this in certain strains of political science, that people make these sort of rational decisions based on some sort of marginal utility, when in fact, everything that we know about human psychology says that that is screamingly untrue. That is not at all how people come to judgments. And when I say people, I don't just mean voters. I also mean lawmakers, because although I don't have evidence of this, lawmakers are people. Lawmakers also reason through the foibles of a human brain and are just as subject to biases and heuristics as any other person. I get a lot of like pushback when I'm like, you know, lawmakers are people. Um, that's I'm sticking to it. I'm sticking to that claim. They're also people. So what that means is that we know to give you a super specific, for instance, that when we talk about inequality as a gap, when we use the metaphor, and we don't even know we're using a metaphor, of a monetary discrepancy or an academic discrepancy when we're talking about an achievement gap or a morbidity, just, you know, we're talking about a health gap or health disparity, pardon. When we use the metaphor of a gap, which is a physical distance, right? There's a chasm between rich and poor. There is a growing divide in terms of wealth. Um, what we are doing with that language, and I know because I've experimented on it, is we are reinforcing the idea that there is that there's a choose your own adventure of an explanation for why group A is different than group B. So in an experiment that I did a number of years ago um, with a colleague uh, at Oberlin, we brought people into the lab and we presented economic inequality to them in the way that economists always do, which is this quintile has this much, this quintile has that much, this quintile, et cetera. And for half the sample, we prime them with this gap metaphor. The gap between rich and poor is growing, growing this quintile, this quintile, this quintile. The other half, primed with a um, metaphor of imbalance. The economy is increasingly off balance with respect to wealth, this quintile, this quintile, this quintile. Asked everybody in the sample, do you think that inequality is a problem for the economy overall? The people in the gap condition, 80% of them said, no, it is not a problem for the economy overall. And 20% said, yes. The exact reverse proportion was true for people in the off balance condition. 80% of them said it is a problem for the whole economy. 20% said it isn't. Because when we present the wage gap or the wealth gap or the health disparity or whatever the, the discrepancy is as a gap, as a 
uh, metaphorical physical distance, we reinforce the idea that, quote, separate economic universes are possible, when in fact we know that the reason why people are as rich as they are is because people are as poor as they are. There is one economy, and the rich people are sucking the money out of it and holding on to it. And so when we continue to say gap, we continue to feed this idea that there's like poor island over here and sucks to be you if you're hanging out on it, but like, why'd you make that bad choice? Whereas when we talk about the economy increasingly off balance, it presents inside of the metaphorical frame, the notion of the economy as a unified whole. And people are like, oh, I can see how if you got on a plane and everybody were sitting to the left of the aisle, the thing wouldn't fly. Yeah. So I know that's only one example. I could give 5,000, but when we think about complex, intangible things, we do so automatically and unconsciously by likening them to things that do have a shape and a weight. And which things we liken them to actually radically alter our perception of what they are and what we want to see done about them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, this has like been fascinating and I've really enjoyed talking to you. So Anat, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast and we wish you the best. Thanks so much. After this conversation with Anat, I really understand the importance of effective messaging and the role it plays in delivering legislation. One thing I want you all to take away from this podcast is to never underestimate the importance of effective political messaging because it really can determine where you go from there. Right? It really does make such an impact. If you would like to know more about political messaging, Anat has some resources that you can all check out. Her handbook, Messaging This Moment, her book, Don't Buy It, The Trouble With Talking Nonsense About The Economy, and her very own podcast, Words To Win By. Good point. These are all helpful resources for anyone who has any remaining questions on the topic. Now that you all know a thing about messaging, I challenge you all to pay close attention next time you watch a briefing and see if you can identify any of these messaging techniques that we've talked about. And with those wise words, that ends our show. I'm Domenica Fernando. And I'm Nadia Osman. See you in March.